Hey everybody, on today's episode of the Total Soccer Show, Manuel Veit is with me to discuss all things Bundesliga, including Jaden Sancho's apparent fitness issues, Schalke's struggles, Hertha's surging form, the ideal next club for Weston McKinney, that's in there too, all that much, much more. But first, the folks at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society would like you to know that in a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure, cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the LLS will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by Abvi in order to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, on your treadmill, wherever you want, climb your way. So join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. That's lls.org slash bigclimb. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. I'm Taylor Rockwell, and joining me from another country on the other side of the continent, it's Manuel Veit. Manuel, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's great to have you back. Oh, thanks for having me once again on the show. Yeah. Uh, you and I chatted uh, fairly recently for a good long while uh, mm. on Soccer 101 about why Bayern Munich have been so good for so long. Uh, if you've missed that, you <laughs> should check it out. Uh, that does feel appropriate given the way these midweek fixtures went. Uh, but I don't want to start with Bayern's coronation like just yet. We can talk about that later. <laughs> Let's instead go back to Dusseldorf where we, you and I had some good times along with the Kooligans and Daryl and everybody else. Today, Schalke mm-hmm. did not have as good of a time in Dusseldorf. They lose 2-1 to, uh, to Fortuna uh, with Lutz uh, in the stands, changing his sweatshirts apparently at halftime. Uh, I've been operating under the assumption that David Wagner is a good coach in a difficult situation. However, today there are moments where I felt like you just didn't see that motivation. You didn't see that fight back. They concede two goals basically mm-hmm. off of set pieces. And I'm wondering now, how much of this do you think is David Wagner not being able to get anything out of the squad versus how much is this just him kind of inheriting a problematic situation i would say that it is uh, in him inheriting a very problematic situation okay. and having having had the honeymoon phase where which was the first half of the season where schalke were good at times um and which somewhat painted over the cracks that that club is obviously you know the many cracks that are that are showing at this club, um, and I think that you know um, before just before COVID nineteen shut things down, and then during the COVID nineteen, where the club um, was one of one of the many clubs that had severe financial problems, um, you know that was one of the clubs pushing to come back because of those severe financial problems. Um, I think some of the, that those problems have made their made it to the field and um, I think it's also you can't really blame David Wagner for the fact that his number one goalkeeper has decided to join Bayern Munich on a free transfer and that the number two goalkeeper isn't really up to Bundesliga standards yet and because of political reasons has to play anyways so you know it's it's a lot of things that are going on all at once at Schalke some some of the little details you can maybe blame on Wagner substitutions and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, you can't blame him for the fact that his side just doesn't have the quality um, 
to play better than their current position. When you say uh, Schubert is playing because of political reasons, I'm assuming you mean relating mm. to that sort of uh, the move to Bayern Munich uh, for Nubel and not, say, Schubert being like friends with Angela Merkel or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Okay. No, I, I, 100%. I mean, if Alexander Nubel hadn't announced that he would go to Bayern in the winter, um, he would be playing, right? That's yeah. that's 100% the case. And maybe and, he should be playing? Yeah, 100% you should be playing. He's the best goalkeeper that they have. I, I mean, you have to go beyond the point where you say, okay, well, look, yes, he's going to leave at the end of the season. Um, obviously, we have another goalkeeper, Schubert, who is talented and is the, num- is the number two behind Nübel in the youth national teams, right? So has obviously has a talent. But, I mean, you just see that mm-hmm. that he is just out of his depth at the moment and when a goalkeeper lacks confidence especially a young goalkeeper you're not going to get that confidence up by giving him a bad situation to deal with week in and week out and there comes a point where you just say look yes we are going to lose Nubel yes by playing him we're basically giving playing time to a goalkeeper who's no longer our property but you got to get points I mean that's really the fundamental issue that is right now at stake that they have to get points on, on the board and Nubel is going to get them the points. And I think that's really what it has to come down to, that they have to start playing their best players. But then is there that that issue for the manager of, if I bring this player back who I have kind of publicly frozen out, it's essentially accepting that even though I don't want to play this player, even though he's leaving, I have to use him because he is that much better. Like, it's essentially admitting fault. And at that point, then it does make Wagner look vulnerable, right? So do you think there's an equally likely chance that we see Mm. basically Schubert play the entirety of, of this season and maybe even start next year as well? Yeah, I I wouldn't. I mean, it it really is is a not a great situation for Schubert because mm-hmm. um, you know if you're a young and talented goalkeeper, but you make so many mistakes, it's hard to come back yeah. from that. And um, you really feel for him. I mean, Schalke are not in danger of getting relegated. Essentially, if they get three more points there at that magic forty point mark, right? And no team in Bundesliga history has ever been relegated with forty points. Um, in actual fact, usually 34 to 36 points are enough, and, and they're pretty much there. So they're, they're going to be fine in that regard. But, I mean, they're also only five points behind a European spot. And um, when you look at Schalke's financials, that's really what they should be aiming for, right? And when you when you look at the, the amount of money that they need and just the, the, the stature of the club, by membership, they're the third largest club in German football. By fan base, they're also the third largest club in German football. I mean, this is a giant of a club, right, that has just not been managed very well for a very long time. And, you know, I think that you get to the point where you say, okay, as a manager, yeah, it's hard to jump over your shadow and say we made a mistake. And it's not just Wagner. I reckon it's the entire sporting staff, right now, going all the way up to sporting director Schneider that have to basically say, okay, look, we made a mistake. We have to play our best keepers because maybe if we can turn this around, um, maybe we can still reach the European places. Or they say, look, this is we're going to ride off the season. We're not going to reach Europe. Um, that's fine. And we're just going to stick it out with Schubert. We're going to give him the playing time. He's the future of this club. We don't care about the mistakes he's made. But then you have to live with the fact that you are maybe going to finish 12th, 13th or 14th at the end of the season. And, and I think that's really what it comes down to. 
And so if they take that route, if they do finish kind of lower down of the table, mid-table, what have you, uh, things are obviously uncertain. No, no one seems entirely confident how the transfer market's going to work and how much mm. is going to be spent yeah. and if it's going to be a massive amount or a tiny amount or somewhere in between. Will Schalke be able to spend if there is sort of some buying going on? Uh, because I'm, I'm also wondering how much trouble they found themselves in with the shutdown. Like, were they one of those clubs mm. who sort of were looking around, maybe getting a little bit nervous and, and like, as you said, kind of pushing for that restart? And if so, do you think they will be in a position where they can reinforce or is it going to be another rough summer for David Wagner as well? It's definitely going to be another rough summer. Really? I mean, their, oh, financials, their, their financials are not good uh, and they haven't been good for a long time. And that's because the people that have managed in the club um, have, have, you know, have done a bad job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no two ways to say this. And I mean... Look at this Nubel situation, for example. It's a, it's a great one to start with because it really shows some of the bad decisions that were made. Nubel is walking away on a free contract, on a free deal. A goalkeeper like that on an open market, even with COVID-19, would give you in the region of 15 to 25 million euros, mm-hmm. right? That's a lot of money. That's now true. He's walking for, that's, now he's walking for free. And that's because in the in the contract, the way that the contract was designed, when he broke into the first team squad, um, if he had failed to play a certain amount of games, he would have automatically received a contract extension and would have been loaned out for a season. Now the club oversaw that when he started playing under Tedesco, um, that he that he had this clause that if he reaches a certain amount of games, his contract would only last until the summer. And the club missed that. They missed the option in that contract. The decision makers at the time missed the fact that Nübel was going to be a free agent this summer. And Nübel's agency said, look, we are willing to start contract negotiations. And Schalke were just too late. They just did not come in with an offer. And by the time they finally did come in with an offer, uh, Nübel had realized that his market value was X amount. And he could basically choose and pick his club. And that is the sort of thing that kills you as, a, mm-hmm. as an organization, right? And um, it really shows you that where some of the wrong decisions were made. And, I mean, you, you look at this happens all the time. Leon Goretzka on a free deal to Bayern. I mean, how does that happen, right? <laughs> uh, it just, I, I, I can go through the board. Yeah. And these, these things are just, are just poison. I mean, you can go all the way back to Mesut Özil, who went basically for almost for free to Werder Bremen during his youth career. I mean, these things cannot happen when you want to be a big club, especially when you have a youth academy like they do. So, you know, I think that they are working very hard on rectifying some of these problems at the club. But if you, David Wagner, and you come in last summer, and you're Schneider and all those guys, you know, working at the club, I mean, that's a lot of work. I, I just started watching Sunderland until I died the second season. And yeah. It's kind of like a similar situation, you know. Those people, they walk into the club and um, Maya, for example, goes walks off, walks off, right, on almost basically a free contract. Oh, Maja, yeah, that's yeah, what they, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, because that's what they inherited. And yep. you feel for the people that that work in an organization like that because they, they, the current people, and this includes David Wagner, they're not really to blame for that, but they look bad because they basically are running a club that has not been managed well for so many years. 
Um, I want to talk a little bit more about what's going to happen with uh, Newbell going forward. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Shaka, specifically about Weston McKinney, who does score today. A good diving header, a good power header mm-hmm. off the free kick, although obviously they don't end up winning. So I doubt he's going to love it so much. But uh, this is Weston McKinney, who I think today they were like he was in a two man midfield, but with a back like a back three. We've seen him as like the deepest lying uh, midfielder. We've seen mm-hmm. him as like almost a number 10 and a playmaker. Where do you personally Manuel think Weston McKinney is best or what do you think like position wise gets the best out of his skill set that would make him sort of a consistent performer for Schalke as opposed to a player who seems like he keeps getting moved around to sort of fill gaps wherever they pop up but maybe then doesn't actually develop into a consistent performer the way we all would maybe like yeah I think where he's played today is that's his best position okay um and in, in central midfield that double six pivot position I think that suits him very well and um, you know when you talk to to some of US his teammates in the US national team they they Tyler Adams for example says like the best midfield would be with him and McKinney I, I would actually agree and go along with that I think those those are the two best number sixes that uh, the US has um, I think McKinney his versatility is almost his biggest enemy the fact that they can just throw him into pretty much any position, and he can play it. Um, is is a is is a benefit for his club, and is a benefit in terms that he gets a lot of playing time. But um, there has to come a moment in time where he basically cements his position as a as a number six. And um, Schalke have to watch it too, because I think he is one of those players that are among the club's biggest assets. Right? I mean. We have him listed as the second most valuable United States national team player on on the planet at transfer market, and he is a very valuable commodity and a player that can bring a lot to the table. And there isn't that many at Schalke that that are like that. So, you know, they have to watch it um, because they are obviously trying to, to build something around him and. Um, it can be very frustrating for a young player to not being given a central role um, and a central a central position, even though you're supposed to be that central player. That all makes a lot of sense to me, but I am now fascinated because I have not seen the list of most valuable Americans. Is Christian Pulisic number one, I'm assuming? Yes, he is number one. Ooh. We have actually, the list is quite, uh, uh, we have every player listed on there. Oh, wow. Um yeah, so it it's we have so many so much stuff on Transfermarkt, Tyler. I, I worked there, I've been working mm-hmm. there now for five months, and I'm still get surprised about the stuff that we have on there. Um, <laughs> who, who are the other Who are the other Americans in like the top five? Let's say. So we got um, Pulisic at number one. Uh-huh. We got I have to do this out of the top of my head because yeah. uh, courtesy of PC Hydro, I have no power today, so I have to do this out of <laughs> the top of my head. Um, you said Weston McKinney, maybe second. McKinney at num- okay, he is second. I am one hundred percent sure he's number two. Um, then I think at number three we have um, I think we got Gio Reyna and wow. Brooks, John Anthony Brooks, sharing that place. And then I think at fourth is Tyler Adams. And then uh, I have to think long and hard. <laughs> I love putting you on the spot is... with this one. I feel bad now. Zach Stefan is definitely still in the top 10, but he's not fifth. Um, but as I said, I put that list in almost every article Yedlin. I write about. U.S. national team, Yedlin. DeAndre Yedlin is number five. Timothy West six. Stefan think... seven. Sergeant eight. Altador nine. Timmy Chandler ten. There's your top 10 right there. I think eight out of the top ten are in the Bundesliga. 
Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. Because yeah. Yedlin would be one, Weah would be one, Altador. So, uh, yeah, seven of the top ten. Yep. Seven out of the top ten, that's, yeah. That's, I know that I knew that right. there's quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks to the Bundesliga for developing Americans. Let's just uh, find a consistent position <laughs> for us to McKinney. That's lot, the next step. Lot more, lot more coming too from <laughs> from what I'm hearing and seeing. The the German German clubs love love the U.S. academy players. There's a lot more coming. There's a lot more in the systems. So I think uh, if if you're a U.S. viewer and you're just discovering the league, um, it is the league that has the most U.S. players outside of MLS. When you hear German clubs talk about American academies, American players coming through, like I'm assuming there are sort of clubs that maybe or teams that get like pointed to as like, oh yeah, they usually have good players, like FC Dallas being one. But like, how do you hear American uh, development academies and younger players being talked about? Is it sort of like, hey, like you should check out Houston; they've got more than they realize, or is it just sort of like, yeah, they're all really good, they work hard, and they're cheap? Like, what is the sort of conversation when it comes to young Americans from that Bundesliga executive perspective? Do you think? I think they see the depth uh, in talent and they also realize that it's that sweet spot that where the talent is extremely undervalued um, in terms of, you know, in comparison to a lot of European countries or even uh, South America where the market is extremely hyperinflated, right? Any Brazilian who can hold up the ball 10 times is worth uh, 10 million euros, boom, done, right? Um, that's just how it is. Yep. A U.S. player with the same same kind of qualities. Uh, I mean, we are all raving about uh, Ulysses uh, Lannis was going to make his debut for Wolfsburg very soon, and his market value is 125,000 euros. I mean, that's a joke. If he was Brazilian, we would probably make it 5 million. But that's just because the market dictates that. that it's It's an unexplored market in many ways. And at the same time, um, the academies in the U.S. are already doing quite a good job. I think there's a lot of flaws in the way the United States develop players. You know, the pay-to-play, for example, is, in my opinion, one of the biggest obstacles for the United States to become a football powerhouse. But at the same time, you have, what is it now, 26 MLS clubs. Three of them are in Canada, who I also think do actually quite a good job as well. Um, that is a lot of clubs trying to develop players, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, US, German teams have a very close cooperation with Major League Soccer. The Bundesliga has a very strong cooperation with Major League Soccer. German teams work very closely with a selected uh, bunch of U.S. teams. I know Bayern Munich have a very tight cooperation with FC Dallas, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they know that they can find those players. And what they also love about the U.S. players is Germany and the United States go back and, you know, since post-World War II, the two countries have been very strongly interlinked. And what they love about U.S. players is that in terms of sporting discipline, in terms of their work ethic, I think they're very much identical to young German academy players, right? You, they can be put in that German academy system and they will put in the work. They're not divas. They're not going to try to come and uh, be fancy or flashy or anything like that. They're, they're just arrive and they will put in the work. Right. And, and then they all, and then they learn German and then it's all good. That's that's the next step. I'm assuming. That's pretty much it. And right. I mean, most of them do it very quickly. I mean, Tyler Adams arrived nobody knowing some German. I mean, that's remarkable. Try to find another nationality that can do that, right? 
Um, and and I yet mean, he's still that, only number four. I mean, I, it makes sense when you look at the people ahead of him. But, you know, I feel like as soon as you learn German, although I would, that, I would assume McKinney and Brooks also speak German and Pulisic probably a little bit too. There's an explanation for that, though, because he was injured for six months. So we ah. do not upgrade players that have extensive injuries because we want to have see them perform, right? And we don't know what value that they're going to have when they come back. Your valuation is based on uh, their performance and their career longevity as opposed to whether or not they speak German? <laughs> yeah, we do try to do our job. It's also <laughs> determined on, I mean, you have to you know, give you a little secret, but a Premier League player who has the same level of, um, was in the same level than a Bundesliga player is automatically valued more than by us than because of just of the way the, the markets work in the respective leagues. So if you see a player with a higher market value, that does not mean he's necessarily better. It's huh. just that of what you will be able to get for that player um, on an open market, right? right? It doesn't it doesn't put into account exit clauses or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. That doesn't play in a factor. It's basically if you and that's why I'm saying like a U.S. player, a young U.S. player could be could be as good as a Brazilian, but we still have to value him less on an open market because clubs are still have a prejudice towards U.S. players, right? How do you think um, that goes away that, long term? If, if, if that prejudice were to, to evaporate, is it just sort of consistent, decent performances from Americans? Do you think like one big, if Christian mm-hmm. Pulisic wins the Ballon d'Or, does that sort of erase the American stereotypes? I'm not sure if it ever goes away. I mean, Germany has won the, the World Cup uh, four times, and yet their players are still valued less than English players. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I we have prejudices um, with all sorts of players and they what we expect them to be valued. Um, I mean, I always joke when Tony Kroos was at his very best, he should have won the Ballon d'Or several times, but he didn't because his last name is German. And I mean, yeah, it might be a bit, bit exaggerated, but there is a lot of truth in that. And so, you know, in some ways we, we value players not just based on their performances, but also on what the market would give in terms of money to certain players. And I think having a Brazilian or a Spanish or Portuguese last name can be can be of benefit. Um, being an American can also be an obstacle in that same way. But at the same time, I mean, Christian Pulisic, his transfer sum to Chelsea, uh, Borussia Dortmund received an, an enormous amount of money mm. from, from Chelsea at a time when Christian Pulisic was definitely no longer at his best. But I think Chelsea were, um, A, it's a Premier League team, so that's already inflates the market. And they were really hoping that they could sell shirts in America. And Borussia Dortmund knew that. You know, you have to, you have to factor in a lot of things when you, when you talk about uh, market values. It's not just like, oh, this guy scored 10 goals and this guy scored 10 goals. Therefore, there should be the same market value. There's a lot of things that play, uh, that come into it for when we, when we factor those, uh, those values. Hey everybody, much more still to come from my conversation with Manuel, but first I wanted to let you know that this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you in part by Hydrant. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Uh, the delicious part is definitely key. My wife and I, uh, while we've been in uh, social distance lockdown, uh, have been kind of fluctuating between fizzy water and still water, and really it can get a little bit boring even with those two options, because at the end of the day we're talking about water. But with Hydrant, you can add in the, the uh, flavor packets, 
we have lime, we have grapefruit, we have blood orange. Um, and it does give you just a little different taste. It gives you a little bit of a pick-me-up in the morning that maybe coffee or tea or just, you know, so, something brown maybe doesn't give you that level of like uh, like crisp, cleanly freshness that maybe you're going for. Um, but you can also go for hydration, which is key. The mixes have the four essential electrolytes your body needs. That would be sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. Once again, your body needs those. Plants do not. Plants don't need electrolytes. We've established that. Terry Crews taught me that. I have internalized it. Um, But there's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, so I guess plants maybe could handle it. Again, don't do that. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more on a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, you can go to drinkhydrant.com slash soccer. That's drinkhydrant.com slash soccer for 25% off your first order one more time. Drinkhydrant.com slash soccer for 25% off your first order. Thank you very much to Hydrant for sponsoring this episode and uh, giving us flavor options. We definitely do appreciate that. Now, back to Manuel. So you mentioned the the value that Dorman received for Christian Pulisic at a time when maybe he wasn't performing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like it could very much be a similar scenario with Jaden Sancho. Uh, we, we, we'll talk about Dorman. Mm-hmm. Dorman l- lose uh, 1-0 Bobby, and I talked about that game a decent amount yesterday, but I wanted to kind of focus in on Dortmund yeah. for a second because we haven't seen Jaden Sancho as much in the return. We've seen him making substitute appearances, not looking quite as impactful as we saw prior to the pandemic. Um, this feels like it could be another scenario in which like Dortmund have this kind of underperforming but still a star player that they end up getting a massive amount of money for. Is that how you see it playing out, or is it is it just sort of Jaden Sancho slow to come back from something, and and we'll get back to that tip top mm-hmm. form? I guess I guess I kind of expected him to be hitting the ground running, scoring goals the way Holland uh, has or had been, and that he hasn't quite mm-hmm. done that yet has me scratching my head a little bit. Yeah, he is looking heavy. Yes. Um, he's looking very slow and heavy and sluggish, and um, I I have no idea what he did during the break. But it looks like he certainly did a lot less than some of his team teammates mm-hmm. because it's not an injury. Um, but he yet he's not fit, and he looks like he is not doesn't have a lot of energy, and that speaks volumes maybe for how he's handled his body during the COVID nineteen break. Mm-hmm. Um, you know when you see someone like Haaland come in who is a model athlete in many, many ways. And the way he's come back to be fit right away, when you look at some of uh, the other teammates at Borussia Dortmund, Torgen Hazard, for example, someone who stood out to me um, in the last games, Rafael Guerrero, who's been fantastic. Um, you know, uh, Julian Brandt, another one. That's a bit disappointing, I think. And I get that this is an extraordinary situation and all that, but... Um, yeah, I think that that is something that they will have to maybe address internally because, I mean, there has been transgressions in the past with Jaden Sancho. And I, again, I don't know what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, this is just, I, I, I think we've I've talked to a few friends that I watched the game with and we're like, wow, he looks slow and heavy. Um, and that is not a good sign. And I mean, Borussia Dortmund desperately needed him in the last two games against the the Classica as well. And um, you look at the way that the Bayern players have come back from the break. I mean, Davies took one game and he was back at his best, mm-hmm. right? And I think that is, um, yeah, a little, I think if you're a Borussia Dortmund fan, a little disappointing. Whether that's going to impact his market value. Now, I, I personally don't think he's going to go anywhere this summer because 
the market value that Borussia Dortmund think he has, given that he's English, which already adds quite a lot, substantially adds a lot to his normal market value, um, they're not going to get that this summer. There's no way that any club in the world is going to pay the 130 million euros plus that Borussia Dortmund will want on the market. Um, I think any club that will pay that kind of money will be looked at very critical by its own fan base. So I don't think that a player like him will move in, in the short, very short transfer window that we're going to have this summer. And I think that um, is going to be an interesting one to look at as well. Like, is Borussia Dortmund going to be able to to get him back up to that top level? Is this just a, a minor little blip, you know, in his development? Because I mean, on the other hand, he's he's producing assists, and him and Thomas Müller um, had the most assists going into this game. And um, is this just a blip? Is he going to be back to his normal form in like a week or two? Right? Um, I think those are the things that we have to watch. I also find myself looking at, at the Dortmund squad, and I think because of the way the results went this week, I know things can change. Bayern could have a slip, and maybe we do end up getting that title race. But with, with so many of the other title challengers dropping points, I think it's natural to sort of start looking ahead to next season and now wondering, like, yeah. okay, well, maybe maybe they'll like retool. Maybe they will have some players come in. And I think when we did the, the Bundesliga re-preview, is I guess I'm going to call that when you were on here, you talked mm-hmm. kind of at length about how Bayern were definitely going to strengthen and would be able to strengthen and would be in an even stronger position so this yeah. season felt like that moment for Dortmund to catch them do you still think like with the market being the way it's going to go how do you think Dortmund sort of come out of this summer and maybe that's the place to start is sort of mm. I think you've kind of hit on it a little bit already but like how do you think what do you think the transfer market looks like this summer will it be like max deals around 30 million is it going to be a lot of freeze and very smaller things is it going to be a lot of nickel and diming negotiating like wh- what yeah. are you sort of expecting for when the window does open I expect very little I mean the story that we've covered quite a bit on transfer market is the um, impending transfer of Timo Werner to Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Let's use that word, impending. Impending. And yeah, um, but you know, slowly impending because it is. They, they, Liverpool has basically more or less openly admitted that they are not going to be able to pay Timo Werner's exit clause, and we're talking fifty-five million euros here which is for a striker of his caliber is an absolute joke before yeah. COVID-19, right? And um, 55 million euros would have been an absolute joke for Liverpool. But all of a sudden, that is a, that, that's an amount of money that they might not be willing to pay. And um, I've read somewhere today, which I assume, because like, we get all our sources from the German end, they, they, the English papers get their sources from the English end. Um, this is negotiations being done over the papers. It happens all the time. Um, we basically wrote that yesterday from from based on our German sources that Leipzig will not not give him up for anything less than the exit clause. They will basically not listen to any offers. You know, someone will pay that fee and then they can't do anything about it or he's going to stay. But and then, then you, but then you from, are – it stands to reason that you're going to have some clubs who then – like in my mind, it almost just means that everything's going to shrink down. That like, yes, that club That's has right. the release clause that they want to like hold on to, but simultaneously, aren't like Schalke, for example, aren't they going to need money? So if they get the right offer, aren't they probably going to be inclined to take it? And that's exactly where the the difference comes in, right? Some clubs will not need money and some will. So I put Leipzig in the same category as Bayern and Dortmund. They don't really need the money. Dortmund don't need money, right? 
So basically, they are going to, Borussia Dortmund are going to be similar to Bayern. And I, I, I know that Borussia Dortmund, for example, with they and close, they've already signed a deal, or not signed a deal, sorry, they have come to an agreement with Jude Bellingham, the, the young Birmingham midfielder that everyone is after, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they want to sign Robin Koch, for the, the defender from Freiburg, and they're springing in um, Monnier from Paris Saint-Germain hmm. um, as a right back. So that's three new players right there. Um, even though they're probably not going to sell anyone. So I put Borussia Dortmund actually in the same category as, as Bayern Munich. They don't really need money. They have taken a financial hit, um, which means they're probably going to do less than they probably anticipated they would. But at the same time, by not selling some of the top players, because the market is not going to be able to buy any of their top players, they don't really have to do as much as they usually would have to do, Right. So I actually think that they are going to be quite fine. But it, it's interesting because you pointed it out earlier. I mean, and I've had this discussion on Twitter with a few people that, you know, basically blame the Bundesliga dominance on Bayern. And I'm like, hold up, hold on here. Like this season and last season, um, this would have been a good time to catch Bayern Munich because at one point last year, Borussia Dortmund were nine, nine points ahead of Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich cannot be blamed for Borussia Dortmund giving away a nine-point lead. No team in the world would have done that, right? Um, and this year, I mean, we saw when we were in Germany together, Tyler, mm-hmm. Bayern Munich were a shipwreck. Yes. You know, putting it generously, yes. Under, yeah, putting it generously. And I mean, at this point, let's be honest here, if Borussia Dortmund, with the quality that they have and the finances that they have, and they are a juggernaut. Um, the financial gap between Bayern and Borussia Dortmund is not what it used to be. They will tell you that it is, but it's not. We have the numbers. We know it's not a huge difference anymore. Um, the problem was that Borussia Dortmund were a shipwreck in their own in their own merits at the same time. So in any other league, in any other scenario, if Borussia Dortmund had had everything together, had played a normal season in the fall, they would be currently four, five, six, seven points ahead of Bayern Munich. And we wouldn't even talk about, you know, Bayern Munich dominating the lead. So I actually see the problem more with, with the likes of Borussia Dortmund not playing consistently uh, and not with Bayern Munich. And, you know, when you look at the finances of the big German clubs, they are all very rich. Germany has the second largest television contract on the planet in terms of football. You know, they're only slightly behind the Premier League. Yet teams cannot challenge Bayern, even though they have these enormous financial resources. I, I just don't believe, uh, you know, that these clubs should be playing second fiddle to to Bayern in in the way that they have. And so then, what I'm guessing you, you would uh, you would go with is that if you're talking about consistency issues at a club that maybe should be challenging Bayern Munich, that then sounds to me like you are maybe still having some lingering doubts about Lucien Favre. I think I saw you tweeting uh, something along those lines that maybe those issues that we kind of wondered about earlier in the season and last season have maybe come back uh, to roost a little bit. Yeah, it's. I, I really like Lucien Favre. I, I'm actually a really big fan of his football. And I think it's the results on Tuesday, it's really hard to blame on him because a lot of things just, you know, it was details. I, I, I thought it was a very good game, mm-hmm. by the way. I thought the two teams were very evenly matched and I think the devil was in the detail and, um, you know, in in the very details that where Bayern are just still slightly better than Borussia Dortmund, you know, the fact that Kimmich is able to chip a ball mm-hmm. over Roman Burki, Manuel Neuer has that, right? 
that he will save that ball. Uh, and the fact that where Borussia Dortmund, um, there was a one situation where there was a supposed handball and the referee didn't give it in Borussia Dortmund's penalty box, but Bayern screamed murder, right? They mm. wanted it to be looked at, and it was. And then on the other hand, Boateng, and I mean, this is a blatant handball. Let's <laughs> make no mistake about that. Um, you know, he falls. Yes, right, he falls, but he moves that arm into the direction of the ball, and that ball goes in. Um, but Borussia Dortmund just keep playing. You can bet 100, 100 euros that the fact if that would have been on the other end, Bayern Munich had, would have screamed murder and the VAR team would have had enough time to look at it and a penalty would have been given. That's just the difference, right? It's little tiny details like that that still make a difference. And it's hard to blame Lucien Faber for that. But on the other hand, you have to wonder, is Lucien Favre would a different coach last year give him up that nine-point lead? Um, would a different coach had maybe gotten out a little bit more out of Borussia Dortmund when they um, when they when Bayern really struggled in the in the fall when we were there um, and I think these are questions that the club in general has to ask because Lucien Faber is a coach who is tactically and fundamentally a fantastic personality I mean what he does the way he thinks about football and the way he works about football, in lots of ways he has revolutionized the game. I mean, his idea that you only um, you only shoot from when you have a high scoring probability um, is something that, you know, people write and think about but don't actually put on, on the field. Borussia Dortmund going into the Classic had a chance conversion rate of 39.2%. You know, that's incredible. They score on 39.2% of their goal chances. I mean, that is a number that is unheard of. I think the second place team had a goal conversion of 23. something percent. I mean, the, 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 the goal is just massive in that regard. So he's actually managed to take theory and put it on the field. But the thing is, um, it takes a lot of the emotion out of the game. And Borussia Dortmund, Dortmund as a city, is such an emotional place. And Borussia Dortmund is such an emotional club. It's a club that wants to go 100 miles an hour every day. You know, it's a club that's been so much defined by by the likes of Jurgen Klopp that um, you almost wonder if that is that the right approach in many ways, and whether they maybe need someone who is just gets this young team that they have gives them some fire. And I think that is really where the debate where the debate is going on. Like, is a tactician, a thinker like Lucien Favre, the right personality? for a workers' club that is as emotional as Borussia Dortmund. So I want to go back to to the idea of Bayern complaining about their calls for a moment. Because to me, like (laughs) if Bayern are like instructing the referee and saying, you got to look at that, you got to look at that, then the referee does, is that not an indicator that Bayern do have that sort of like the big club bonus that they do get that favoritism? Or are you saying it's that level of like professionalism that they've been there? Uh, they've seen Barcelona surround the ref and they know to do it as well to make sure that they get their calls too. Like, is it a professionalism thing or is it that they do maybe get a little bit of favoritism because they are Bayern Munich? No, I think they, they earn their favoritism. Um, I think they get it, but because they ask for it. Um, you know, nice teams don't win titles. <laughs> it's, it's really Fair. unfortunate, but it's so true. 
Um, I have given up the illusion that if you are a nice person, and like, you can be nice, but Wait, not Lester, Lester seemed kind of nice. That would be my only one I would point to, I think. And even yeah, then, Jamie Vardy can probably yell at you a little bit, so maybe not that nice. Yeah, yeah, but they, they had everything come together. That's and, also true. You know, um, you need that. But even Jurgen Klopp, I mean, he's not a nice person to the referees. I mean, yeah. you can make you can make clips about him yelling at the refs. In the Champions League, there were a few occasions. I mean, he was banned for a couple of games in Germany because of what he did with the refereeing team. You can't you can't expect that from Lucien Favre. Uh, and actually, one hundred percent that handball. If Jurgen Klopp had been on the sideline, Borussia Dortmund would have had a penalty there. Mm-hmm. I actually put my hand in the fire to say that because he would have screamed murder as well. And you see that every day with Liverpool. Like, yeah, he's a super nice guy. I mean, I want to go and have beers with Jurgen Klopp, but. I do not want to play football against him because he's extremely competitive. And I think you need that. You absolutely do. And, and, there, and I don't mean this, I genuinely don't mean this in, like a, in a critical way. But like, how well do you think Jurgen Klopp plays that personality game? Because I have heard the same thing. I've heard that from people who like, were former employees when he was at the same team. And it's like, he is very demanding and very abrasive, but yeah. also is very good at playing the media game and sort of, you know, doing the smile when he does his interview, even though he has just berated the fourth official 10 seconds before. Mm. Do you think that he is like, like intentionally a bit more likable on screen? Or is that just kind of who he is naturally? I think he is both. He's both. Yeah. I, I think he's definitely both. I mean, I've been in, I've been at that famous uh, press conference in Salzburg, um, <laughs> where that, that made the that made the headlines, oh, right? Yeah. Because he's he right, absolutely right. destroyed the translator. Uh, <laughs> I think there is that side to him. Um, I had a chance encounter with Jurgen Klopp once at the Oktoberfest, and he was very. That sounds nice. like a good time I mean, to have a chance encounter with Jurgen Klopp. Uh, it was a chance encounter Oktoberfest, yeah. Um, but I mean, we also had a lot of beers, so you know, everyone is kind of happy at that stage. Uh-huh. Um, but I, you know, I do think he is extremely competitive, and he, he's also just a human being. And when you are in a stressful situation and you are extremely competitive and you want to win at all costs, which he does. Um, then you are going to be maybe a little bit less forthcoming than you should be with the media at times. And I mean, he did apologize um, after the game, um, after the Salzburg game. He did apologize directly to the translator. He said like that was out of tune and he he's extremely sorry for it. I think he's noticed right away that, that what he said was, was not cool. Um, and I think, you know, but I think it was because he was under a lot of stress. Liverpool had to win that game, right? Um, it was a very important match for them. So I think, you know, any competitiveness is, is important in that regard. And I do know, I think that, that people that are extremely successful are also very intense, um, with what they do and, um, they will do everything in, in their regard to win and be perfect, be perfectionist. I mean, we all just watched. The Michael Jordan documentary mm-hmm. um, in Canada was on Netflix. Over in the US, was on ESPN, right? Yep. And uh, Michael Jordan did not come across as a nice guy, um, <laughs> but he won. He won a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is that is something that we have to when you when you with this, these Type A personalities, and that's what they are. Then you will get competitiveness till the very last second of a game. And Bayern Munich to get back on topic collect a lot of type a personalities 
In mm. fact, they make it their mission to find players that are type A personalities. And there's a lot of good footballers that have not survived at Bayern Munich because they're not t- type A personalities. They seek them out. It's part of like it's very much part of their DNA. Um, and we, we've spoken on that a one-on-one podcast a little bit about that, right? Mm-hmm. But this is the the club is a Shark Tank, but it's that makes them successful. Hey, everybody, this is Taylor jumping in one last time to let you know that this episode is brought to you in part by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that are super consumable and easy to take on the go. So you got the CBD, but then you also get vitamins. You're healthy and also calm. Uh, I was trying to think of who would maybe most benefit from some, from some CBD, from some Sunday Scaries uh, in the Bundesliga. The three that came most quickly to mind would be John Brooks, only because he always looks so focused. I don't see him crack a smile during a game, which I guess is what you want from a defender. But maybe if you want to be able to unwind a little bit to quiet your mind when you get home, you could go CBD. Uh, If you're David Wagner and you're feeling a lot of stress because suddenly your team aren't very good and you're not sure why and moving Weston McKinney around isn't really solving it, then the CBD can help you keep your composure. It can help you relax a little bit, chill out, just sort of find your center and then go from there. And lastly, maybe Alfonso Davies, just because he's so fast that my assumption is that then his brain is fast too. So maybe the CBD helps him relax a little bit and again helps him decompress. Those are just three. But I'm sure a lot of other people could use CBD. Uh, and if you would like to try it, you can get 25% off your first order with the code SOCCER at SundayScaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at SundayScaries.com and enter code SOCCER where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. You can find out what product might be best for you, and then you can go to SundayScaries.com and use the code SOCCER to get 25% off that first order. Thank you once again to Sunday Scaries for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to Manuel one last time. Is Alexander Nubel a, a type A? Because you mentioned Memo Neuer, like he yeah, maybe he would have made be. that save that Berkey <laughs> did not. Memo Neuer is also 34, which is like older for an outfield player, maybe less so for a goalkeeper. So it stands to reason that maybe like he and Nubel are going to split some time. It'll be Manuel until it's uh, Alexander mm-hmm. Nubel. But how well do you think Nubel will do at Bayern Munich with that pressure, with that sort of uh, atmosphere around? I am really worried about Alexander Nubel. Uh, <laughs> I think he might have made a terrible career choice. Um, I hope I'm wrong, but I think he really has. Uh, Manuel Neuer is going to eat him alive because this is, <laughs> this is, I, I, I mean, I've, I've spoken to Manuel Neuer in the press conference. I've asked him directly. I, I had a chance to speak to him personally around the time when the whole uh, Manuel Neuer against Ter Stegen thing was an issue for the national team. And uh, he was very direct about the fact that when he is fit, he's playing, mm-hmm. right? And if he is doing this to Mark Andre Ter Stegen, who is among the best goalkeepers on the planet, how is he going to handle, you know, a 23-year-old guy who's just coming from Schalke? Um, you know, in fact, we've, we've asked Manuel Neuer in, in, the, in the press, like in the mixed zone about this, like about splitting times and whether, whether he is like willing to give up games. And he said, like, if he's fit, he wants to play. Hmm. He wants to play every game. And he's, he's the captain of this club. And you look at the way he's played this year. Why would you not play him? I mean, he's been absolutely incredible. Right. We have put we have to put Manuel Neuer back into the conversation of being one of the best goalkeepers in the world, maybe the best goalkeeper in the world, at the age of 34, after having a career almost career-ending injury. I mean that's incredible. Um, and you know you look at even the game against Borussia Dortmund, he adds something to 
to the game that no other goalkeeper on the planet can do. The, the, the fact that he comes so far out of the box and is basically an extra field player is something that no one else can, no one else has really been able to copy consistently on that level, game in and game out. And yeah, he's. I, I think you know um, part of the contract, difficult contract negotiations that we've seen between Manuel Neuer and Bayern Munich were the fact that they they brought Alexander Nübel. And I have, I I would love to find out the things that were said about Mar- Alexander Nübel during these contract negotiations. Because so, in the end of the day, Manuel Neuer got this contract, right? Yeah. And he's also, though, a guy who came from Schalke, Manuel Neuer. And that is that is mm-hmm. my other question about this, is like like a lot of times when you hear about hazing and how bad hazing can get uh, in a fraternity, for example, it tends to be like the people who were hazed, when it's their opportunity, they're like, well, this happened to me, so I'm going to do it to you. Manuel Neuer, like when he when he moves from Schalke to Bayern Munich, he has to like sign the, the contract that says like he won't kiss the badge <laughs> or whatever, or he'll wear like a certain type of shoe. He has all these rules. Do you think that he will have any sympathy for Alexander Nubel coming into this? Or do you think he is going to be like extra hazing because he had to go through it himself? So this, this, the background story is very different. So Manuel Neuer is like a Schalke boy through and through, right? Gelsenkirchen, born and raised, um, grew up loving the club, um, slept in Schalke 04, bedding and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, Alexander Nübel is a Paderborn product. Product. He was brought in from Paderborn to Schalke. So he's not even a Schalke fan. So it's the entire background noise over this transfer was very different because of this, because um, Alexander Nübel is not Schalke born and bred, right? And that already makes it very different. So the, the, the hate that Neuer received because he was like a Schalke fan through and through, Nübel never is going to receive that. Um, and then also... Neuer replaced, uh, basically showed the door to a Bayern Munich product um, who was playing goalkeeper at the time, Thomas Kraft. Um, he was a Bayern Munich Academy product and Neuer came in because Kraft wasn't good enough. But Kraft was basically also a Bayern fan, born and raised. And that's why the, why the stands, they the loved him, right? They were big fans of him. That's why the, the emotions were so high at the time. So you don't see the same with, with Nübel. They, the hate wasn't is not going to be quite the same simply because Nubel is not really a Schalke boy through and through. He doesn't have seem to have an affiliation to Schalke Nullfeer like Manuel Neuer did. He you know, if he had one to Paderborn, I mean, no offense to Paderborn, but no one really cares, right? Um it's a very different story. So I think in that regard it's it's very different. And also I think many fans of Bayern Munich realize that it's going to be Neuer in goal. Um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, they're going to expect the best goalkeeper in the world to play for their club, and their best goalkeeper in the world in their eyes is Manuel Neuer. All right, so, Man- so Manuel Neuer will be at Bayern Munich. They will also have Schalke's goalkeeper. Since we're sort of back on Schalke for a moment, uh, Daryl did send me two questions for you, uh, which I now have. The first one, uh, they're both about Schalke. Uh, does David Wagner have an attacking plan, style, or system, or is it more about pressing and turnovers? It's definitely, I mean, it's very similar to Klopp's idea of counter-pressing, right? Um, if you lose the ball, you get the ball back quickly. I think he really would like to play attacking football. And um, I think every coach, I haven't really met too many coaches that hate attacking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they all will say that they like it. But um, I think he's definitely one of those that would actually like to really bring in it as a main principle. The problem is Schalke don't have a forward. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to have a good striker 
to um, to really have be efficient in, in front of goal. I mean, the people that listen to um, our Gegenpressing podcast, um, they will be familiar with Chris Williams, who was always on the show as well, who I do the show with together. And um, Chris Williams has been banging about Schalke needing to sign a striker, I think now for two years. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that that's really the number one thing for them. They really need to bring in a player that can actually score for them. And, uh, I mean, the last last matches were a great example. I think at some point they played uh, Rabi Matondo up front as a striker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he might be on Manchester United scouting radar, but he's definitely not a number nine. Um, so, yeah, I think I think this is really something that they have to address um, really urgently for for David Wagner to be able to play the way he wants to play. But as you mentioned, there will be some financial issues. It's going to be maybe a slow summer. Yeah. So I'm going to connect some theoretical dots here. And this is the second Daryl question that I'm going to blend with my own. But let's let's uh, imagine Schalke do want to sign that striker. They, they know they need to get out and get that number nine. But maybe they can't afford it. And then somebody, some other Bundesliga team comes in with a massive amount of money offer for Weston McKinney that will allow them to buy that number nine. So if mm. Schalke were going to get rid of Weston McKinney, if they were going to part ways to have some money come in, is there another team in the Bundesliga that you think Weston McKinney would do very well at? Like if they were to come in and get Weston McKinney, that he kind of immediately goes in, starts and thrives and has a lot of success. Leipzig. Okay. I'd be <laughs> fine with that. I think they would be quite happy to take him as well. But um, Hertha Berlin. I know Berlin have been a transformed team ever since Bruno Labbadia has taken over. I think they've played some really good football. Um, they'd probably be happy to take him and probably also have the money because they have an investor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be a really good shout. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at some of the other teams, Dortmund is a no-go. Um, you can guarantee that. And then they, they, you're looking at teams that just don't have the money to, to pay for, for him. Um, and I think Schalke in general would be well, ill-advised to, sign, to sell Weston McKinney at this point because they're not going to get his market value, which means they're going to have a hard time replacing him. But if you were to go to Leipzig, uh, we presume that would that would be good because we uh, I like what Nagelsmann has done. It seems like they've done a good job of kind of bringing in the talent and making it fit and, and playing the style mm-hmm. they want. They do drop points today, which is a, a yeah. slight bummer if you're in it for the title race. If you're a Bayern fan, maybe less so. Uh, so where are Leipzig then overall in their sort of plan at this point because when like you know Bayern uh, excuse me not Bayern Leipzig famously kind of had this idea like we're going to get to here by this date we're going to get to here by this date we're going to kind of move it up and last I checked I believe they were ahead of schedule I'm wondering like kind of where they are now and what you think they need to do to close that gap a little bit more to be seriously in that title race from beginning to end of say next season yeah I think that I think that they are definitely ahead of schedule Mm-hmm. I mean, they're also still in the Champions League whenever that's going to continue. And I think, um, you know, when you hear the rumors that it might go single elimination, um, they would have probably have a good shot winning it mm-hmm. um, because they are very good. And I think that the one problem that they have, and I, I actually spent some, you know, without power. Thank you again, BC Hydro. Without <laughs> power, you actually have some time to think about these things. Um <laughs> I, I think because like my theory going into coming out of this break with Leipzig was that they're going to do better than other teams because they have more squad depth. They have a really deep side, right? Um, and I thought that would really help them because many, many games back to back, you will want to rotate. 
and that's great. Um, and they're doing it. And I mean, I think they they're doing it very well. And um, they're able to bring off players off the bench and play them. And they 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 consistently on a high physical level. But then today I thought, okay, why are they dropping so many points then? If that is the case, and I I, I have I think I have the answer. And I I think it's because. Julian Nagelsmann is a notoriously slow starter with his teams. Um, you know, the, his tactical his tactical concepts are extremely difficult to learn. Um, he spends a lot of time on a training training field, working on tactics, explaining tactics to his players, and really working out all the little kinks um, in in his philosophy, and which is a very complicated playing philosophy to understand. Players have to be almost perfect perfectionists um, to really play it and. Once it works, I mean, they get the results, no problem. I mean, the Tottenham games were, were a great example for me. So I think Leipzig's big problem is that they basically came out of a preseason. And while their players are all physically fit, and I know that they're all physically fit because I was able to speak to some of them about this. They are in peak condition. But social isolation and distancing means you don't really work on all those tactical little things. And I think that is where the big problem lies right now. And it's unfortunate, it really is, because I think if without that break, we will probably have a three-way title race right now because Leipzig wouldn't have dropped all these points, right? But because they came out of this break, and even though, and this, this kind of throws away my entire theory that I had before, you know, with this whole preview that I thought they would do really well, um, I think that is maybe where, they, where they're struggling right now is that, uh, they hadn't had the time that Nagelsmann needs to work on his tactical systems. And it shows um, it's, it shows in little things. Um, and the game today yeah. was a great example for it, I think. Yeah, because I, I saw that in, the, in their first game back, and then I saw them destroy Mainz, and I thought, like, okay, maybe they've worked yeah. out those kinks, now they're back to it. And what I'm realizing now is that's the same Mainz team that they destroyed when we were in Germany. So maybe it's just that Mainz are maybe not the strongest of opponents, and then you go up against a team that are a bit more resolute, like, uh, like Hertha have been, surprisingly, yeah. and you end up in a 2-2 draw. Um, I, I did want to ask, uh, to, to keep it on the American track before we talk a little bit about Hertha, um, I wanted to talk Tyler Adams for a moment, because he does kind of play that like I hesitate to call it right wing back because I know I know you've you've talked about that at length but he starts kind of on the right hand side nominally uh but I yeah. and that that got a lot of attention today uh I think from American fans it sounds like that wasn't always going to be the case though am I correct in saying that the Kevin Campbell injury factors into how yeah. Tyler Adams plays in this game yeah so Conrad Lima was supposed to start as right back and Kevin Campbell was supposed to start in midfield um, and then uh, Campbell picked up an injury just before kickoff, and they had to they had to switch it around. And then Tyler Adams ended up in um, what was actually a natural right back position. It was a straight up right back position. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, needless to say, that is not his best role, um, and I don't think it was planned that way. I think if if Leipzig Nagelsmann had had his way, then Lima would have played in that role, and uh, Campbell would have played in midfield, and. Uh, maybe the game would have ended differently, but um, who knows? I think, you know, I, I watched that game um, in great length. And I was, it was actually, this, this, this game was was on just before I lost my power. So um, it, it was actually really, I thought it was an interesting watch because, you know, you could see see those little problems that they had. And I, I thought Tyler Adams did not have one of his best games. And I, I that's why I also think that maybe, that role is just not his because you can put him on the right side. And I think I mentioned this the last time we spoke about him, right? 
he's great when you when you put him on the right side and you say like okay look you, you're going to play as a transitional midfielder on the right and we're going to give you the task to take someone out um like in the in the in the game against Bayern Munich um in the Allianz Arena where he was basically on uh, Alfonso Davies and I thought he did quite well in that role um but to play just straight up as a right back I just don't think he has that natural running up and down the field pace that's required for for that position in an, in a in a new you know in, in the way that right backs and left backs are playing nowadays I think he's is he's that's not just his 100% most comfortable role and I know it's not because I actually had the opportunity to ask him about it and um you know he's he's basically said straight up that he wants to play in midfield so I think this was just the last minute okay well we have to put him here because you know we know he can play that role he can he can fill that hole um, in a last-minute basis, but I don't think it was any anything that the, the club hoped for. And then next season, it's Tyler Adams and Weston McKinney starting alongside each other in that midfield, and then everything is solved? <laughs> Maybe for the U.S. national team. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, let, let's flip to Hertha for a moment. Uh, Hertha Berlin, uh, for, the moment, it, for a moment, it looked like we're going to give this game away. Some poor goalkeeping, let Leipzig go up uh, 2-1. Yeah. Then Leipzig get the red, Hertha get the equalizer. Uh, and it has been a very strong restart for Hertha Berlin. How do you explain that? Is it that Jurgen Klinsmann was that bad? Is Bruno uh, Labadia that good? Or is it some combination of the two? It's amazing what a good coach can do, eh? It seems I mean... that way. It seems that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think um, Bruno Labbadia is the most underrated coach in German football. Mm. Um, wherever he goes, the, the clubs usually turn around. Um, I mean, he was at Wolfsburg and uh, at Wolfsburg, he avoided relegation. And then the next year, they, they managed um, to qualify for the Europa League. And, and then the club wanted to take a new direction and brought in Oliver Glasner. And I think they've been okay, but I actually thought they were better under Bruno Labbadia last year. And um, Hertha somewhat hesitated to go with Bruno Labbadia. And I don't understand quite why he has that reputation as a coach who's not going, given like long-term projects, because he does have the, the point average to show for. And, you know, his most clubs he's worked in, he had success. So I, I was, I was kind of surprised when Hertha waited this long until they finally went for it. Maybe it's not a sexy enough option, you know, sometimes that's the case. But, I mean, boy, I mean, they've been transformed. They, they've been excellent in the three games coming back. And we always knew it was not a quality issue because Hertha Berlin invested a lot of money into their, in their trade players. They were the, the club that spent the most money in all of Europe over the winter transfer window, right? They have the quality. Um, I mean, they brought in a striker from Italy, um, Giotek, who, who was one of the hottest prospects just a year ago, right? Um, and Dori Lukabaku, I think they have a player that a lot of clubs last year, last summer wanted to sign when he was still at Fortuna and had to sign him. And I think they're going to bring in a lot more players over the summer because they have an investor and the investor is thinking very big. Um, and in Bruno Labbadia, I think they finally have a coach that can put it all together. I think they're actually playing at a level now that they should be playing at with the talent that they have on the field. And I think that's that's actually quite exciting for for Berlin as a city because they need to have a sexy football club. And that's that's actually another thing. Um, I know an American friend was a huge Hertha fan, and he's he always complains about Hertha because they play boring football, and they do. They always have played boring football. Um, and we watched a couple of the games over Zoom together because that's what everyone does nowadays, right? With yep. social isolation. And he's like, I can't. He he said to me. 
I'm not recognizing Hertha. They're playing sexy football. Oh, and you yeah. know what? They are. <laughs> Happy days for your friend. I like that. I like that. So if they are going to invest, if they are going to strengthen, what what sort of type of player are we looking at? Like, I know they've already reached the agreement uh, with Lucas Tussar. Uh Is that yeah. the sort of like level we're looking? Do you think it's going to be like big splashes, like the way City spent money on Rubinho way back at, then to kind of show people they were legitimate? Do you think Hertha are going to go for like one big name to sort of turn some heads? Or will it be about kind of filling out the squad with core key players? Big city club Hertha, I think you will see a big name. Oh, yeah. uh, I think because they can, right? The market is actually kind of um, kind of fantastic for them right now because they're going to be able to get players on on a lot less than the market value and um, maybe players that we would have not identified with Berlin. And I think that um, Berlin as a city is is an attractive place for players to live in. It's a cosmopolitan place, right? Uh, but I also think that Germany because of where we are with COVID-19 as a country is probably being viewed as a place that a lot of players want to be because it's done well during this crisis. You know, it's, it's handled this crisis better than pretty much any European country. And I think that's something that is going to help the league overall for players, you know, that want maybe job security and financial security, but also just safety in a lot of ways i think that's going to help them so i think hurt is actually going to benefit from from this quite a bit and yeah i, I think i think i think Hertha are going to surprise us i think they're going to to go out and bring in a couple of players that we all know very well and you know that also going to make this club better and i think that's that's a great thing for german football because you know the the league needs a t- strong team in berlin so Jaden sancho to Hertha berlin confirmed <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, I think Jane Sancho is going nowhere. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't be shocked if someone like Mario Götze uh, ends up at Heather. Ah, um, that's a good shout. You know, that would, that would not surprise me one bit. All right, I have one final question for you, and it comes from somebody other than myself. Uh, and it's about a team that we have not yet mentioned, uh, and I think haven't really ever mentioned when we've talked about Bundesliga and German teams. This one comes from Kai uh, Weitinger, who asks, How did VfB Stuttgart go from Champions League qualification and Bundesliga champions to the two Bundesliga? <laughs> yeah, Stuttgart. Um, speaking of just sleeping giants, right? This, this is another very big club, and... Um, the stadium is right next to the, the Mercedes-Benz uh, factory in, in Stuttgart, uh, the place that I go often to because when I'm in Munich, when I'm in Germany, um, then it's only it's only an hour and a half train ride from, from Munich. So it's a really easy place for me to, to watch a lot of football I genuinely games. didn't know if you were talking about you go to Stuttgart for games or you go to the Mercedes factory. And I was very confused. Like, do, can you buy the Benz I, every I time you're over there? Both. Okay. So I actually do both because they have a fantastic museum at the Mercedes-Benz um, mm. at Mercedes-Benz factory. So it's actually a great way if you have extra time before a game, you can go to the factory and the museum and check out the history of Mercedes. And then you go to the Mercedes-Benz Arena, which is um, like maybe three, four hundred meters of distance to the, to the to the museum. It's a great way of combining the two. But um, Mercedes is a is a big investor into the club. So, you know, they have they have the financial backbone to do a lot better. And it's again, it's a story of a big club not being managed well um, over many years, um, because, yeah, you, you know, as the listener said, like this is a club that's played in the Champions League. They have won the title uh, in 2008. 
Um, no, sorry, 2007, they won the German title. Hmm. It's not that long ago either. I mean, this was a club that was playing for the Bundesliga title, right? Um, in a very, very big city in, in a wealthy part of Germany. And yeah, you, you kind of wonder like, what's going on wrong with them. And it shows you that no, big, no club is too big to go down. Um, and Stuttgart is a great example of that, and I think it's a warning, warning sign, uh, warning symbol for for many clubs in Germany. I mean, they're not the only one. Hamburg is another one, right? Mm. A, a club that's never gone down until two years ago, and then all of a sudden we're down. They were also um, a club that was trying to be in the top four in Germany. So um, the Bundesliga is a league where that can happen. Um, there's a lot of big clubs that, if they're not managed well, they, they it can happen very quickly. And is that is that financial mismanagement? Did they spend too much money on the wrong players? Was it a lack of investment? Was it a a, a stingy owner, or was it just sort of some combination of uh, a series of factors? Usually in Germany, it's management, yeah. right? Because owner, ownership plays a very limited role. Um, even if you have an owner or investor, those owners and investors only always own a minority stake because the clubs are always run by uh, the members. Mm-hmm. So it's usually it's it's management. And I mean, anyone who wants to know how easy it is to ruin a football club, just watch Sunderland until I die. I think um, you can take that example and um, to some variation or another. Um, it, it's probably something that happens at football clubs quite often because there's a lot of experts out there that think they can save a football club. But there's only very few people who are actually the experts that could save a football club. And I think that's why so many times football clubs just go belly up because or get it wrong because it's quite easy to get it wrong and it's very difficult to get it right and you know for every Jurgen club i think there's about 20 managers out there that are just not good um they they live off their reputation they they try to copy or copy what other managers are doing but i don't have the man management skills and i think it's it's very easy to get things wrong as to get things right in football as to get things wrong in football mm. rather than get them right and i, I think that's why you have so many examples of big football clubs struggling because um, big football clubs attract the sort of people that want to, you know, sun themselves in the glory of a former big football club, but don't actually know what they're doing. I think that's a very good answer and a very good cautionary tale as well. So thank you for that. Thank you, Manuel, for taking over an hour to talk all things Bundesliga and help me make some sense of some things that otherwise did not make sense. Is your power back on or are you still without? No, I'm still without. And, wow. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I guess I'm barbecuing tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will let you go plan your meal. But Manuel, thank you uh, once again. It is always very much appreciated. Yeah, I love coming on every time. <laughs>